Welcome back to the Don't Knock It podcast, where we address misconceptions about Jesus' character, his church, and his word. By doing this, we hope to encourage you to delight in Christ before dismissing him, to know him before knocking him. I'm your host, Chris Ramirez, and today's misconception is you don't have the originals, so the New Testament is unreliable. Let me begin by walking you through a brief scenario. Your church is going through a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and you invite a friend to join you. Let's call him Jacob. After the opening announcements and a few worship songs, you take your seats and the pastor says, Good morning, everyone. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 7, beginning at verse 53. As you and Jacob turn there, you see a subtitle beginning at chapter 8 that says, The Adulterous Woman. You think to yourself, wow, I love this story. It's so moving and I think it displays the heart of Jesus in such a beautiful way. I can't wait to get into it and I think Jacob will be really blessed by it. As you're imagining Jacob being so touched by this story that he gives his life to Jesus, you feel a nudge on your arm. You think, wow, Jacob is already asking a question? That's amazing. So you turn to him and he has this confused look on his face as he's pointing to the bottom of his Bible and mouths the words, hey, what does this mean? You fix your eyes to the bottom of the Bible where he's pointing to and read the small footnote that reads, The earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11, also known as the story of the woman caught in adultery. As you start to feel the hairs on the back of your neck rise, and your heart start pounding as your mind rushes to find an answer, all you could say is, I don't know. As the church service goes on, a wave of questions begin tumbling around in your head. What's a manuscript? How many are there? And what's considered an early one? Is this footnote found on other pages? And why in the world is this precious story of Jesus showing compassion and forgiveness to a woman while while rebuking the self-righteous not included in these so-called early manuscripts? This episode is to help you have an answer for your friend Jacob. Or if you're in Jacob's shoes yourself, it'll provide you with an answer. So before we go any further, I just want to say that a lot of what I talk about in this episode may come as a shock, and my intention is not to stump you or make you doubt or play devil's advocate and show you how many Christians really don't know their Bible, but to encourage you and equip you to answer a question like Jacob's, or maybe even have an answer for the skeptic at school or at work. And then I also say this, as Christians, we do not check our brains at the door. We are called to love God with all of our strength, soul, heart, and mind. Having faith is not a blind leap into the clouds, hoping we're caught by someone we call God. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I jump into the clouds knowing I will be caught by the person who has revealed himself through those clouds. So I pray this helps you do exactly that as you rejoice over how faithful God has been to preserve his word throughout history and how he used imperfect human hands to do it. And that's what I want to talk about today. Now, consider how many times your pastor has said, the Bible is the word of God. It is our final authority. It is without error. They may have even quoted Matthew 5 verse 18 where Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So I'm not trying to say any of those things are not true, but when you make an observation like Jacob's, you will naturally have questions about whether or not what your pastor has said about the Bible is actually true. Hmm, is it truly without error? I aim to help you answer those questions. So let me lay it out like this for you. 
The Bible is a collection of historical documents written several hundred years ago in three languages of which we don't have any of the original manuscripts. Yup, that's right. What I mean by that is we don't have what Paul or John or Peter originally wrote to their specific audiences. Not even the copies of the originals, not even the copies of the copies of the originals, nor the copies of the copies of the copies of the originals, and even more times over. For example, Paul did not write his letter to the Ephesians in Greek, and then somehow we got a hold of that original letter, translated it into English, and that's the letter to the Ephesians we have in our Bibles today. That would be awesome if that was the case, but that's simply not how it all happened. And it would be foolish and lazy for me to tell you that that's how it happened. To get to what we have today is actually the result of several centuries worth of faithful, tedious scholarship. So how, Chris? What is this faithful scholarship you're referring to? If we don't have the originals, how could we trust the Bible? How could we be sure that what we have now is really what Paul and Peter and John and the rest of the New Testament authors had then? That field of study, my friends, is called textual criticism. So what exactly is textual criticism? Daniel Wallace, one of the leading scholars in this field, defines it like this. Textual criticism is the study of the copies of any written document whose original, referred to as the autographs, is unknown or non-existent for the primary purpose of determining the exact wording of the original. Or to put it even more simply, Textual criticism looks at the existing copies of an original document when that original document no longer exists, in order to get back to that original wording. The primary goal of New Testament criticism is to answer the question, is what we have now what they had then? That's the goal. Okay, so that's the goal of New Testament textual criticism, but why is it necessary? Well, for two main reasons that I've kind of already mentioned. Reason number one, it's necessary because the original documents, often referred to as the autographs, like I said, uh, no longer exist. And then reason number two, that those copies that we do have, no two copies are exactly alike. If we had the originals, we wouldn't need textual criticism. And if each copy we had was exactly the same as the other, we wouldn't need it either. Yet even between the two most identical copies, there are six to ten differences per chapter. So since the Greek New Testament has 260 chapters, that adds up to a lot of differences, even between the two most identical copies we currently have. So textual criticism is, is not just some random, nerdy, unnecessary field of biblical studies. It may seem random, and if I'm honest, quite nerdy, but absolutely not unnecessary. It is essential in recovering what the biblical authors originally wrote. So we know the goal of this field of study and why it's necessary and we don't have any of the originals. So what do textual scholars have in their possession to work with? Well, we have, as Dan Wallace puts it, an embarrassment of riches to work with. There are over 5,800 Greek manuscripts. However, not every manuscript is a complete New Testament. We have only about 60 complete New Testament Greek manuscripts. Those are some of our most valuable ones because the New Testament was originally written in Greek, but we also have an abundance of manuscripts in several other languages. 
We have over 10,000 Latin manuscripts whose average size is about 450 pages. We have about five to 10,000 ancient versions in Coptic or Syriac, and then over 1 million quotations from the church fathers. These church fathers were the early church leaders who were discipled themselves by the 12 apostles and often wrote commentaries and homilies on specific passages, which I think is pretty remarkable if you think about it, to think that we actually have the writings of the disciples of the disciples, quoting and commenting on the very scriptures in question is pretty awesome. So you may say, okay, hold on, Chris. Earlier you mentioned that, that there are about six to 10 differences per chapter between two of the most identical copies we have. So how do textual critics address and handle these differences? Yes, so this goes back to the second reason why this field of study is necessary. If you recall the two reasons why textual criticism is necessary, the primary reason being that we don't have any of the original manuscripts, and the second reason is, is no two copies are exactly alike. This question pertains to that second reason. No two manuscripts are exactly alike. So the differences between each individual manuscript is called a variant. Some skeptics consider these variants as critical mistakes made by the scribes copying the New Testament throughout the centuries. So much so that these scribal mistakes, so to speak, are what make the New Testament manuscripts unreliable to, the, to these skeptics. One of them being the most renowned Dr. Bart Ehrman, one of the most famous New Testament textual critics, who infamously said in his New York Times bestseller, Misquoting Jesus, that there are more variants than there are words in the Greek New Testament, which is a very bold statement, but he's not wrong. There are about 140,000 words in the Greek New Testament and about 400,000 known variants or differences between the manuscripts. This means that his statement is actually a severe understatement. Although he is correct by making this bold claim, this statement is incredibly misleading because the vast majority of New Testament variants are minor, easily explained scribal errors that don't affect the meaning of the text. Among 400,000 textual variants or uh, differences between manuscripts of the New Testament, over 99% make no difference to the meaning, and less than 1% are both meaningful and viable. What I mean by that is less than 1% of these differences between the manuscripts actually have the potential of both changing the meaning and being what the original author wrote. So let me give you a few examples. About 70% of New Testament variants are due to spelling some of which include the presence or absence of a, of a removable new in the Greek, which is just an N that looks like a V. We have something similar to this in the English language when we add an N after an A when we say, for example, John threw an apple at Jerry rather than John threw a apple at Jerry. Another example of variants are changes in word order. So word order in the Greek language actually doesn't change the meaning of the text as it does in English. In English, if I say John threw an apple at Jerry, the meaning changes if I change the word order to John threw Jerry at an apple. Yet that change in meaning doesn't occur in the Greek. Because these variants make up the majority of all variants in the New Testament, it's not about the number of variants present in the text or between the manuscripts, it's about the nature of the variants. It matters what type of differences we see. This is why Bar Ehrman's claim that I mentioned earlier is a severely misleading one.
Okay, Chris, so you shared some examples on what makes up the majority of the variants, which is helpful, but what are some examples of the 1% of variants that do change the meaning? Okay, so here are two examples. Let's take 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, which says, But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Most manuscripts either say little children, nepioi, versus gentle, epioi. So do you think Paul wrote, but we prove to be little children among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children? So do you think Paul wrote, but we prove to be little children among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, comparing little children to nursing mothers? Or do you think he wrote, but we prove to be gentle among you, comparing gentleness to nursing mothers? It's probably gentle, which is why the majority of our Bible translations have the word gentle and not little children in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. One later manuscript actually says hippioi, which means horses. So with that, comparing the earlier manuscripts to this later one, we can definitely conclude that Paul did not write, but we prove to be horses among you and not little children or gentle. Another example of a variant that would change the meaning of the text is John 1.30, where it reads, After me comes a man. One later manuscript, Codex L, which dates to the 8th century, says, After me comes heir. That variant would very much change the meaning, yet is most likely not original to Paul. So those examples are examples of variants that would change the meaning of the text. But we could conclude that they were most likely not original by simply observing the differences. Those variants can be observed in later manuscripts too. But I want to present two examples of variants that also change the meaning and are not so easily dismissible as the previous examples. Let's begin with Romans 8 verse 2 which reads, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Most manuscripts have me instead of you. So it reads, For the law of Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free. And then other manuscripts have us instead of you. So it reads, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free. Does that change the meaning? Well, certainly. But we could tell from other passages that what Paul says here doesn't change any essential Christian doctrine. Another example is Philippians 1.14, which reads, to have far more courage to speak the word without fear. Several manuscripts have of God after the word. So it reads, have far more courage to speak the word of God. And then other manuscripts have of the Lord after the word. So it reads, have far more courage to speak the word of the Lord without fear. So do these changes alter any significant doctrine to the Christian faith? Not necessarily. But is the difference worth noting? Absolutely. So I took the time to introduce you and walk you through these examples in order to highlight that it is the nature of these differences found between manuscripts that truly matter rather than the number of differences between the manuscripts. So you may say, okay, Chris, so you showed us minor differences in word changes and even said that word order doesn't matter in the Greek, which is reassuring. Are there any larger differences between the manuscripts we do have? Like are there whole passages that are present in some manuscripts, but not present in others. Yes, absolutely, and this is where I'll land the plane because this goes back to our little scenario at the beginning with Jacob noticing the footnote in his Bible which reads, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7 verse 53 through chapter 8 verse 11. This passage referred to as the story of the woman caught in adultery is considered to be one large variant. 
Now, the reason this beloved passage is footnoted and distinct from the rest of John's gospel with either being italicized or bracketed is because this passage is absent from virtually all early Greek manuscripts. The earliest presence of John's gospel as a whole is in P66 and P75, the P meaning papyrus. So papyrus 66 and papyrus 75 are both dated back to the early 3rd century, which in fact are very close to the life of the Apostle John, who was exiled at the end of the 1st century. This passage is also missing from two of the most prominent and reliable 4th century codices, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, which each contains the four Gospels in its entirety. So for the passage of the woman caught in adultery to be missing from those very reliable manuscripts is questionable. The passage is also absent from the earliest forms of the Syriac and Coptic Gospels, and from many Old Latin, Old Georgian, and Armenian manuscripts. So what does this all mean? It means that the history of the story of the woman caught in adultery being absent from the Gospel of John is consistently widespread through time, across different geographical locations, and using different textual types. This shouldn't scare you or cause you to lose faith in the God that is revealed in the scriptures because even Bible publishers know this is not a sufficient reason to walk away from the faith, which is why virtually every single Bible marks this passage in some way. In fact, I think it's even more of a reason to trust the reliability of the New Testament because of how we're able to notice what is most likely original and what was probably and most likely added later. This is why textual criticism is vital. This is why I went through the time to introduce this field of study to you in this episode. But even still, you may ask, but Chris, why is it still in our Bibles then? If it's not present in our most reliable manuscripts, why not just keep it out of every Bible from here on out? It remains in our Bibles today because its inauthenticity is not conclusive and final because it has all the marks of a genuine, and most certainly possible, experience in the ministry of Jesus. It is most likely kept as well because no significant doctrinal truth is compromised due to its presence in our Bibles, and can surely be used to highlight the mercy and saving grace of Jesus. In fact, let's finish with reading the passage in question. If you have a Bible handy, turn to the end of John chapter 7. Quickly notice the brackets and the possible footnote at the bottom of the page and follow along with me. Starting at John 7 verse 53. Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, This woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you. I do not condemn you either. Go and sin no more. 
This is so beautiful. Christian textual critics acknowledge the questionable reliability of this text, but do not question the beauty of the person it describes. The very Savior of the world who bore our sins for us so that we may be declared righteous in Him before the Father in heaven. The one who was crucified on the cross and declared that no one comes to the Father but through me. This is the Savior we encourage you to seek after with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. To delight in Him before dismissing Him. To know Him before not. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Don't Knock It podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ramirez. Grace and peace, family.